brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. You're not going to be able to solve all of your generational traumas in one lifetime. But if you can stop one thing from repeating, you have done a good job. Welcome to the I Did Not Sign Up For This podcast, a weekly show dedicated to highlighting the incredible stories of everyday people. No topic is off limits. Join me as we explore the lives and experiences of guests through thought-provoking, unscripted conversations. And if you enjoy this show and would like to support this podcast, consider joining my Patreon. You'll gain instant access to over 70 exclusive bonus episodes, entries into giveaways, a discount on merch, and more. Your support allows me to continue bringing you these important stories. So head over to patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this and become part of the community. I'm your host Carling, a Canadian queer identifying 30 something year old providing a platform for the stories that need to be heard. Amy, good morning. Hi. It is an early morning. It is, but we're here. We're queer. We've got coffee and uh, like, what else could you ask for? Yeah. Cheers. I feel like we had a reasonable recording time scheduled and then I was like, hey, I forgot about all these things and now it's 8 a.m on a sunday <laughs> but i so. mean that's it's par for the course yeah. it's you know life happens and you know to make your work sometimes go around life yeah well thank you i appreciate it yeah no problems and i feel like the last time i had you on the podcast we just had this like little baby podcast in 2021 and we didn't quite know what was happening or what we were doing. I still, with a caveat, don't always know what I'm doing. But now I feel like, I don't know, you've got, you've done so much since we last talked. This thing has changed so much since we last talked. Yeah. It's, uh, it's that give growth. It's yeah. crazy how things kind of just shift and change and if you follow the breadcrumbs in your life that sometimes it leads to something bigger yeah yeah so well so an update so you were on i don't have the episode number because somehow apple stopped showing the episode numbers it was 70 it, something 70 something called heart mama amy and Artie's story and you came on to talk about your little guy Artie, who was born with a heart defect is that the right yeah. thing to say yeah and it was incredible. But since then, you've gone on to, I don't know, just start a little organization and do a bunch of talking. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a pretty wild journey, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you wouldn't expect you know, giving birth to a kid with a serious heart defect that you would end up using that to change other people's lives. So, you know, the one little guy has definitely changed the course of the world, which is awesome. I took a public speaking class with the Pride and Joy Foundation, which was very insightful and because I knew that I wanted to talk about Artie's story but I didn't have like an end I didn't know yeah. why it was important and so that class taught me how to do that and once I figured that out I started public speaking and now I've spoken to over 2,500 medical professionals across the world 
and I started a nonprofit called Tiny Hearts Can Foundation, working to increase the prenatal detection rates of congenital heart disease in infants because one in 100 kids have a heart defect and half of them are not detected, which is awful because yeah. if you listen to that story, my son would not be here without knowing prior um, to his birth. And how old is Artie now? He turns three next month. My God. And he was just a, like a tiny little nugget when we first. I mean, yeah, a little baby bee. Yeah. I mean, not yeah. that he's ever been terribly small, but yeah, <laughs> he's, a, he's a, a much larger man. You have to call him a big man. He is not a small man. <laughs> That's incredible. Wow. So I just loved our conversation so much. And then you recommended me to do the Pride and Joy Foundation. And I loved it so much. And I'm so excited to, I got to wrap my head around um, this idea of finding opportunities to speak. Yeah, that's that one's hard. Like, who's yeah. going to listen? It's a huge, yeah. constant battle, but that's a lot of internalized stuff, which we yeah. will probably get into later today. Yeah, so I just asked you if you would come back and share another piece of your life, and you were so kind to say yes. Yeah, my whole life is a, is a story in and of itself. So, uh, yeah. Lots yeah. to dig into. So what are we digging into? Um, I've been trying to figure out the best way to navigate this so that it makes sense to people. So I have a lot of childhood trauma. And because of that, like, I kind of imagine my childhood like walking down a street and window shopping. So oh. a lot of my memories, they don't always make sense. And they're like sometimes the, the glass is frosted. So I can't quite see it, but I know that there's parts in there that make sense. And also they're not necessarily chronological. And so it's kind of like bits and pieces, which makes it hard to try to tell a chronological story when you don't have a chronological memory working in that way. I love that analogy, though. That summarizes a lot of my own experience. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, the door to the shop is open and you can walk in and take a good look. Or sometimes it's locked and you're like, I have no idea what is behind this window display. So I myself am second youngest of six kids. Wow. I know, right? There's a 10-year difference between the oldest and the youngest, two boys and four girls. The boys bookend everything. My parents split when I was very young. I have no memory of them being together. I think I was probably two, maybe three. So my mom, she was mostly the single parent, and then we would go to my dad's place on the weekend. I've been learning, being a parent, that, uh, like, yes, parenting is hard and trying to keep other people, like, emotionally regulated when you are not regulated yourself is a huge challenge. But I think the biggest challenge for me when it comes to parenting is that you, you want to decide, like, what kind of parent you want to be. And in doing so, you reflect a lot on your own childhood. And yeah. I did not expect to be reliving my childhood and navigating all of these childhood traumas again. I had kind of made this assumption that I was over it. I see it. I acknowledge it. You know, this is what it was and that's fine, right? But like, no, healing is <laughs> never ending and it's ongoing. So yeah, just reliving all of those traumas and life and, you know, Thinking about how I want to do things has brought all of this stuff back up to the surface. What was childhood like in a word? You know, what was it like growing up? Chaos. I am good at living in chaos. Oh, yeah. And so finding peace 
feels uncomfortable. So we shuffled back and forth between my dad's house, and my mom's house. There was always like a lot of tension between the two of them. I think I was about eight years old. I don't really know. My mom went into the hospital because she was diagnosed with what is now called dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. So she was not mentally able to take care of us. I remember being taken into the basement by my older siblings and telling them, you have to wait here. You're not allowed to come upstairs. Don't come upstairs. And watching an ambulance come and then leave with my mom on a stretcher. I had no idea what was happening. I was one of the younger kids. So like my older sister, especially Christy, she worked really hard to protect us from all of that. But as a kid, like knowing something is better than knowing nothing, or at least it would have been for me. It was just that she was sick. Like why is she sick? So she was in the hospital for a year. I've been told that my dad was unable to gain custody of us. So we had no parents living with us for a year. We had a social worker, a home care worker come and live in house. Wow. So your house became like a group home. That's the way I picture it with a professional looking after you. Yeah. So that was a lot. When I look at my memories, I don't see parents. Right. I I like to think of us or I imagine us as like just feral children running around (laughs) doing things like the games we played were really rough. We would jump off the deck into piles of snow and it was a tall, like over six foot deck or grabbing sleeping bags and going tobogganing down the stairs constantly. You know, the more kids you have, the rougher the games get, or at least that's kind of the mantra that we were all told. But I don't know if that's necessarily the case in all homes. There was a lot going on for that because my sister, Christy, she didn't trust our home care worker or other people to take care of us. So she took on the role of mom at 14 years old and would like do the cooking and make sure that we were bathed and do all of that parenting kind of stuff. But as a 14-year-old, you're not equipped to be a parent. Yeah. And there were a lot of things that I learned from her, which I understand and I do not fault her for. But like, you can't talk about what happens in our home because otherwise Mm -hmm. Child Protective Services is going to come and they're not going to find a home for six kids. Yeah. Don't invite your friends over to the house. There's no, nobody's allowed to be here. It's just us. Tell people that it's because you play really hard, like. You're not being abused. You're just playing really, really hard. There's all of these, all of this messaging that I got as a wee little elementary student that made sense because that was normal in my life. Yeah. But didn't necessarily set me up for success as an adult. And it's been really fun to try to peel away at these layers as an adult to a young child. And I'm like, oh, people want to come over for playdates. That's weird. Yeah. Other kids don't come into our house. And so just trying to like navigate these two things and kind of go like, okay, this is one situation. This is another. It's so hard because you're right. Like it wasn't your sister's fault. A 14 year old shouldn't be in charge of five other children based on your mom's mental health. She probably, you know, wasn't the most regulated, well-adjusted 14 year old either. So she was just probably parroting you know things that she experienced yeah so and I did talk to my mom and she said that she's okay with me sharing parts of her story as well and I imagine she's going through exactly the same thing that I'm going through but to a much larger degree for herself Mm -hmm. like I said when you become a parent you're trying to figure out how to do all of these things given your own experience my mom the reason why my 
mom and my dad split up is that she is queer. She identifies as a lesbian. And I always joke, I'm like, after popping out six kids, I'd be gay too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But she realized this at a young age. My grandparents, they grew up in the Lutheran church and they had some very firm beliefs on how things should go. And instead of supporting her, which is challenging in the 60s anyways, they decided that the best route was to have exorcisms. <sighs> so she was in the church and she tells me that she was like beaten with Bibles, doing awful things to her. And the way that she responded to that was to dissociate. If you yeah. are somewhere else in your mind, that's your brain trying to protect yourself. Yeah. And how old was she? I don't know specifically. I would imagine it was as a teenager. Yeah. If they did a lot of that. And then she kind of just left it. Random events would start happening where she would like wake up wearing these very expensive shoes. And she's like, where did these shoes come from? And it turns out that she would have this other personality come out, drive to a store to get the things that this personality wanted and then come back. And then she's like, I can't afford these. And then she would go and return them. And then she'd have a time when she opens her eyes again and they're back. So she's like, don't let me buy shoes. If you see me again, like, don't let me buy these shoes. But like, she's not in control of, yeah. of what's happening. So like, like full personality switches. Yeah. And did anybody else recognize this? Did she disclose this to anybody that, hey, I don't know, sometimes I wake up and something's happened that I don't remember. I don't think at that time she did. I think it kind of like subsided for a while. My dad and my mom met at Bible college because, you know, that's what you continue to do. Yeah. So the church was always a part of my life as well. I grew up in the Lutheran church and all of the all of these messagings like it's supposed to be a safe place, but you don't really realize that there's this generational trauma that's following your family. Yeah. But once all of these kids are here. You got six tiny humans running around. That's a stressful situation, first off, even if you are of sound mind um, to be dealing with. And then it kind of just pushed it all over the edge. I think I've seen a couple of the personalities myself personally, but it just got a lot worse because in her mind, she, she says it's like sitting in a room with like a whole bunch of TVs on. And all of them are talking and sometimes one will grab your attention and that one comes to the forefront. That's, so it's like, who's driving? Yeah, that's got to be terrifying. Yeah. And so she was in the hospital for a year and I imagine she was quite young. Probably mid thirties when she was in the hospital yeah. and we were kids. So probably right around my age. I know. I think of young differently now. I'm like, she was probably my age. So young. <laughs> and I'm all Look at 40. me. So yeah. fresh. <laughs> But it's weird to think of your parents experiencing something at the age that you are now. Yeah, the, like the whole experience of just like you assume that adults know what it is that they're doing. And then you get to this point and you go, oh, wait, no, nobody knows what it is that they're doing. You're just kind of doing it and hoping that you're doing that, the right thing. Yeah. I tell my stepkids all the time. I'm like, listen, guys, this is our first go around, too. We don't know what's going on, just like you don't know what's going on. I think also there's been a huge shift in how we talk about life and things, too, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever heard my parents say, I don't know what it is that I'm doing. Yeah. Or having that ability to be like, let's learn together. I think that's a big generational divide in being able to 
share that we are faulty humans who make mistakes and that we can apologize that for them, own up to them and make a change to do better. I feel like that's not that's not something that other generations have done. So it's yeah. we're also navigating how to have honest, authentic relationships with our kids and how I much think- is oversharing and how much is not. <laughs> yeah. And I think it'll be interesting this like I feel like we're like what do they call us? Elder millennials. But I think this next generation that the elder millennials are raising are really, it'll be really interesting to see because we are owning our stuff and going to therapy and unpacking the generational trauma. Yeah. And I mean, like even just reflecting on my mom's experience and how because of her being queer, she was beaten with Bibles and coming out for myself wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. I still experienced a lot of challenges within that. And I can see the pattern of like internalized homophobia and just not something that I've ever like knew that I had that because it's internalized. Right. But yeah, when my mom came out to me when I was older, she's like, yeah, so I like women. And my first said the first thing that I said to her was, so does that mean you're going to hell? Because that's what I was taught. Yeah. Right. And digesting all of that and then it took me a long time to figure my stuff out yeah I didn't date people through out junior high or high school I'm like ah, I don't know I just one day I'll be interested in wearing makeup (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know yeah just like waiting for it to happen yeah and thinking to myself that you know like oh sporty spice I really want to be her friend I wanted to be Sporty Spice. I didn't understand my obsession with her was not Not that. that. (laughs) Yeah, those high kicks, man. They were very impressive. Yeah. Yeah, with the amount of celebrities that I just had a friend crush on, I would say, or like, I just want to be like them. No, I was super gay and super into them. Xena, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, that princess warrior. She was... Very, very talented. Yes. (laughs) So it's it's just interesting looking back and like, I don't know if it was the internalized homophobia that was keeping me from realizing my own stuff or if it's just that, you know, the expectation of friendships between female presenting people is that you're supposed to be affectionate. You're supposed to be touchy. You're supposed to share your feelings. But like the way that we process that is different. Is it infatuation Mm. or is it friendship? Yeah. So that's always been a fun thing to kind of digest. But like sorting out that internalized homophobia and even for myself, once I figured myself out, I'm like, okay, well, now I can cut all my hair off and that's okay. Right. But I had I had hair down to my elbows graduating high school. Like God, we're gonna have to share photos because I had elbows. I had elbows. <laughs> you I'd had hit. them, not anymore. I also had elbows. <laughs> my hair would like was so long it would get stuck in my armpits. Yep. And I wore like makeup for days and like high heels. It's that expectation that you need to do these certain things. And yeah. I think the, I mean, as awful as the pandemic has slash was, having that time away from socializing with other people, I think gave a lot of individuals, myself thinking, like a thinking of myself, to really digest a lot of relationship. Because I have always, I realize now, 
lived in this state of anxiety of constantly being on edge. Something awful is going to happen. I mean, I talked to you in my last episode about everything that's happened since pregnancy with my daughter. We had four family members pass away when she was six months old uh, within the span of nine months. And then like my sister, Christy, she died too. the one who ended up doing all the all the raising. She died in 2010 of a random heart issue unexpectedly right before Christmas. And so like I've got all of this stuff, all of these really traumatic events that have just kind of been following me. And I don't think I ever realized that I was in this heightened state of anxiety for my entire life. Yeah. And once I had the chance to just sit at home and not talk to people, I learned what not having that state feels like, what what peace can feel like. Yeah. Not going scary. out. It's weird. I would think about going out and visiting certain people and I'm like I don't want to do this I don't want to go there but before I used to just assume that everybody felt that way yeah (laughs) that you go and you do these things and you visit with people that you don't necessarily want to what if I just don't do those things that make me feel super anxious like if I'm feeling that way about visiting with this person is this a healthy relationship time to process that but also like parent your kid and try to sort through all of these like falling dominoes of, a, of different things and yeah it's just that the healing and it would be really easy to kind of just put everything in a box and move it off to the side and ignore it and then just like feel your feels without knowing why that's not good enough for me <laughs> <laughs> I like to dig and figure things out so yeah it's just been it's been a, a lot of a lot of healing and a lot of picking apart my own past experiences and trying to do better. And within that, like the, the keynote queers taught me how to advocate for myself. And becoming a parent, it's really easy to advocate for your kids because it's not yourself. Yeah. And then being able to see that there is a difference, that if you can advocate for your kid, then why aren't you setting an example and doing that and showing your own boundaries and yeah. saying, communicating what it is that you need with your own adult relationships? Yeah, I'm like a fierce advocate to so many things. But then like when it comes to myself, I'm like, oh, it's okay. Like I'll just internalize it and deal with it myself. Yeah, it's a lot easier to to do that for somebody else, right? If, yeah. if a friend is feeling sick, I'm like, okay, you should take the day off. Go put your feet up. I'm going to buy you some noodle soup. I'm going to get all these things. You have a rest and I'm going to take care of you. But if I'm sick, I'm like, no. Oh right I must go on yeah yeah so like why aren't we treating ourselves with the same care that we treat other people yeah it's really interesting yeah and I do think that comes from that generational trauma I don't think people put enough stock in evaluating the patterns that have repeated themselves through families through generations and how it's created like the people today even if it happened you know five generations ago yeah I read this thing and it said, if you're not going to be able to solve all of your generational traumas in one lifetime, but if you can stop one thing from repeating, you have done a good job. And I felt a lot of pressure in myself to try to stop all of these things from happening in the future. But knowing that even if I just stop one, that's still really good. And that's okay. You can't solve everything in one go. I mean, you can try, but like, Give yourself some credit. 
give yourself some credit. So like my mom, I remember as a kid, she's like, I stopped the cycle of sexual abuse. And I'm really proud of myself for doing that. And what a huge impact. Yeah. To your fit, your generation. Yeah. Like that is huge. And I give her a lot of credit for that because like, that's not an easy thing to face. And so now it's like, okay, how do I stop the cycle of like religious trauma and not measuring up within like just being as a queer identifying person that who you are is okay no matter who you no matter what shape that turns out as you are enough yeah so stop that and then also like trying to work on regulating myself trying to stop those cycles of just all of these patterns and trying to do better it's not an easy job especially as a parent right yeah it's not an easy job regardless but yeah. yeah. And I imagine like in a two parent household too, like your partner also has patterns and beliefs that came from generations that don't serve your family. Right. Yeah. So, You're marrying literally two people's lifetimes. Yeah. Into one household and trying to figure out how to pick those apart and create healthy relationships within your own family. And like my poor wife has gone through so much even in just the last six years she found her mom deceased of her medical issue and finding a deceased body of somebody that you care about like that's traumatic yeah that's hard and you know trying to deal with all of these things dealing with estates we're very good at planning funerals (laughs) (laughs) could be a side business (laughs) actually what's kind of funny slash not funny because you got to find the humor in the trauma is um so like three days after her mom died her grandmother died and we went back to the same funeral home and we're like can we get a bulk discount <laughs> did you have to sort of deal they pay did for three yeah oh wow yeah, <laughs> yeah oh. they were very kind they're like i'm so sorry we're like thank you <laughs> you gotta take it for what it is so the year that your mom was in hospital you had a social worker living with you. Did you eventually move to be in full custody with your dad? Oh, that is an excellent question. Okay, so I believe what happened, the The home care worker's name is Josette, and apparently she still like checks in on us on social media every Aww. once in a while, but I haven't seen her. In that year, no parents. I think my dad did end up coming and living in the house with us afterward. So- okay. But I now know, I've seen the research on it, that not having parents and having that time away really does affect your relationships with adults. Interesting. Yeah. And there's been like this overriding fear of abandonment in my life. I wonder where that I came can't from. I imagine why. Yeah. <laughs> so like the relationships that we have with our parents, I think since that time, they have all been affected in different ways for all of us. Yeah, it's because we kind of hold people at arm's length. And I really noticed that this was a problem for me when we found out that, again, jumping timelines back and forth, when we found out that Trump was taking children away at the border Mm. with their families and just hearing these parents like trying to get back to their children, trying, trying, trying. I'm like, these kids need support and I just sat there and I cried I'm like why am I having such a huge reaction to this oh I'm reliving my childhood yeah cool so like even though we did have parents come in afterward it's never the same like why couldn't you be here and even if you have that answer it doesn't stop all of the rewiring that happens in your brain it doesn't stop 
the the fact that you don't trust that they're not going to leave again was it something i did am i not being good enough like there's a lot of stuff that you especially as a child and i know that stuff isn't true but that doesn't mean that it doesn't still come up yeah because your brain why was wired to think that and then also don't talk about it because child protective services isn't going to come yeah the public speaking class it's it's like okay your story does matter and it's for me it's been figuring out parts of myself because i was trying to protect my family but now that I'm an adult, who am I protecting? By not talking about these things, by not acknowledging them. Yes, those things protected me then, but it's okay. You are safe. You don't need to hide these things. It is part of your life. It is part of your story. And by not talking about our experiences, how can we do better if you don't acknowledge that they even existed? So, you know, just trying to figure all that out. Yeah, well-raising to well-adjusted contributing members of society. Exactly. How do you do that in a responsible way, acknowledge it, and then try to do better? Wow. And do you and your wife, uh, like the only term I can think of is call each other out, but, you know, push each other to acknowledge those and confront those things? Totally. I mean, we spend a lot of time just like before bed sitting and talking about whatever and most of the time we giggle at nothing but like if something comes up you know I had a really hard time with this today and she goes do you think maybe it has to do with like the fact that you were super poor and you know you've had food insecurity I'm like oh yeah that (laughs) probably makes sense right yeah so we we do that back and forth or for her like she tried to my my brother-in-law is in kidney failure He needs another kidney. So Sam went through the whole process of seeing whether or not she was an eligible donor to donate her kidney. And she is a 99% match. Is that good enough? Do you need to be 100%? He needs a a 100% match because this is his second kidney transplant. Oh, no. So she felt so defeated. She was having like these nightmares. And I'm like you know that it's not your fault that you're not a match, right? Like it's so, it's such this big thing. And I trace it back to her mom because she felt a lot of guilt that she didn't check up on her mom the day before. But it wasn't like, okay, your mom's death is not your fault. You not being a match is not your fault. You are very caring. You have done more than the average person ever would. You are okay. You are enough. It's not your fault. You are not responsible for these people's health. So we address it. And then once you can see it for what it is, it's a lot easier to process it and go like, I see it. You are not serving me. I'm going to work to challenge this internally. And then you can put it off to the side. But again, as I continue to parent and grow, I realize that putting it off to the side doesn't mean that it's gone. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. (laughs) They come back and then you have to see it in a different way. Like I just came back from a fundraising conference and I'm like, okay, I need money for my nonprofit so I can save babies. And they go, okay, so let's challenge your own views on money. How did you grow up and what are your perceptions on people with a lot of money or people with a little bit of money? I'm like, oh crap, here we go again. (laughs) It just keeps popping up, right? Yeah. And who knew that? trauma and your entire lifetime will literally affect every single aspect of everything that you do all your core beliefs and how you approach 
literally everything, literally everything. Go, oh, okay. The reason why I have a hard time asking people to donate to my nonprofit is because we were taught not to ask people for money. Yeah. So now I have to challenge that. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. So it's just, you know, to everybody out there, like, it's okay not to have your stuff sorted. Yeah. Nobody has their whole life unpacked and sorted and put into the right places. Like, those get mixed up all the effing time. Yeah. You're going to find stuff in those boxes that you thought were sorted correctly and go, oh, wait, no, this is now going to go over here. Yeah. But I think it's, it's you know, those of us that are confronting it and acknowledging it and making space to, yeah, to do that sorting is going to make such an impact on these next generations. Yeah. And I'm totally okay with when my child is older and able to digest these things being like, okay, let's unpack this box together so that you understand (laughs) me a little bit. Yeah. Right. It's a process, man. It just, it's ongoing. And kudos to all of us for just like trucking through. I mean, truly, though, especially with the added layer of queerness, you know, to unpack. I appreciate you so much. I feel like I want to take this conversation in 400 directions, but that'd be like a 17 hour conversation. We we definitely need to go out for like real coffees. Yes. And hang out because I feel like we would be good BFFs. Yeah. In real life too. And I feel like the last time. No. Yeah. When you were in Calgary last time, you brought some delicious scones. Oh, I feel right. like they were they pumpkin. Yeah, yeah, from my garden. Yeah, and yeah. I feel I don't know. I need to bake you and your family something. Yeah, all right. I'm down. We like treats. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Like I said, waking up extra early on a Sunday, the morning after your pride party. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. To talk about generational trauma. Yeah, like you do. It's just a regular Sunday morning conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll let you get on with your day. I will tag all of your stuff in show notes and social media so people can find you. Beauty. And hopefully you'll come back again. Yeah, absolutely. We will chill and hang out and we will keep talking. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, enjoy your day. You too. Thank you. We'll see you later. Toodles. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I hope you found our conversation informative and entertaining. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow me on social media, share this podcast with your friends, and leave a review at ratethispodcast.com slash I did not sign up for this. Your support means the world to me. If you want more interviews, exclusive content, and ad-free episodes, join the Patreon at patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this. I hope you all have a fantastic week ahead, and we'll talk soon. Hey there, welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay, and I'm joined by my co-host and real-life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off-the-cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons, and 90s fashion. 
Join us every week for a lighthearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a diehard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap.